0: We're halfway through LARB's summer member drive. This week, we're honored to partner with Plowshares during their 50th anniversary celebration. Become an annual member of the Los Angeles Review of Books today to receive all the perks of membership, including our LARB quarterly journal, our book club picks, selections from our publishing wing, our fabulous tote bags, and much more. As a bonus, receive 30% off a one year print and ebook subscription to Plowshares. Join today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Hello and welcome to the Larb Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're talking with documentary filmmaker, Hogir Hirori, about his film, Sabaya, which opened in theaters in LA and New York last week and is opening in wider release this week.
1: So this documentary is, it's quite difficult to watch and we should warn audiences that it is also, you know, it it deals with uh, sexual assault, and violence of a lot of different kinds. it's a documentary about Zabaya, which are women and girls, some as young as uh, seven, seven, taken into slavery by ISIS in Syria. And this film follows a man named Mahmoud and an organization there that is uh, trying to get these girls back home to their families and essentially rescuing them from a refugee camp where they are hidden among family members of captured ISIS fighters. So it's a quite an intense film and sort of extraordinary to watch because the documentary filmmaker, Hogir, uh, who we speak to in this interview, he goes into the camps with the rescuers and smuggles, essentially smuggles these girls out. And so you see that happening, you see that live. So, yeah, it was quite an experience to watch it.
0: Yeah, and and as Medea is saying, it is quite difficult to watch, but it is also a real marvel of a film, not only just because of the kind of the dangers of the documentary filmmaking itself but also sharing a story with the rest of the world that I think very few people are aware of and so in that sense even if it is quite difficult to watch it has a sense of of urgency and it was inspiring in that kind of way when you see something that you're like whoa you know the things that I think are challenges in my everyday life pale in comparison to what is the, the daily reality of the subjects in the film. So without further ado, let's get to that conversation.
1: All right, let's do it.
0: A quick note to our listeners, Hogir spoke to us through translator Hannah Valenta. So it's her voice that you will hear in the responses to our questions. We have Hogir Hirori with us on the line today to talk about his latest documentary, Sabaya, which had its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival and is now screening in New York and Los Angeles. For listeners who want to watch the film after listening to this conversation, it will be available nationwide August 6th. Sabaya is a moving and visceral documentary that follows a team of volunteers from the Yazidi Home Center in Syria who are trying to rescue Yazidi girls of various ages, some as young as seven who have been kidnapped and sold into sexual and physical slavery by ISIS. One thing I should explain to listeners is the terms ISIS and Daesh, which are used kind of back and forth probably in our conversation, both refer to the same group. Hogir's camera follows the action in incredibly intimate detail as volunteers Mahmoud, Ziad, and others go into the dangerous al Hol refugee camp where Yazidi girls are still held hostage by ISIS members. As they rescue the girls and bring them back to the Yazidi home center, viewers witness both the girls' palpable relief and the horrific treatment they've been forced to endure at the hands of ISIS members. Armed with just a mobile phone, a handgun, and information from quote-unquote infiltrators, indicating where the captured girls are being held, Mahmoud and his team face incredible odds to do their heroic work in a Syria still racked by violence. Sabaya is a harrowing story then of both the best and the worst of humanity, told from a place and by a people who are too often just headlines in international newspapers. It is also a model of the power of documentary and the filmmakers who put themselves on the line to tell the stories that the world needs to hear. Thank you for joining us, Hogir. Thank you.
1: Hogir, I just want to begin by, if you could explain the circumstances Around when you were making this film, both on the ground where you were near the camp, and perhaps politically, both in Syria and Iraq and the neighboring area.
2: För idén till Sabaya har jag hade ganska länge, så ja, det här är egentligen den tredje delen av historien som jag gjort efter flickan som redan mitt i pågående mina.
3: I got the idea to make Sabaya after I had made the two first films in my trilogy of documentaries The Girl Who Saved My Life and The D-Minor. Eh
2: so it was 2019 jag åkte ner till Syrien för att ta reda mer på vad som har hänt med de här flickor och uh, kvinnorna som var kidnappade av IS.
3: So it was in 2019 that I went down to Syria to Try to find out what had happened to these kidnapped women and girls.
2: Uh, men resursen mm-hmm. på själva ämnet började redan 2018.
3: But I already started researching the subject in
2: 2018. Så 2019 uh, när jag ner till Syrien, so då var situationen ganska lugnare eftersom IS var redan besegrat i Syrien.
3: In 2019, when I went down the first time, the situation was quite calm. Because ISIS has just been defeated in Syria.
2: Och tanken var att vi skulle ta med oss ett större team nästa gång jag skulle åka ner. Men så blev vi inte fallet eftersom situationen blev ju värre för varje dag som gick.
3: And so we initially planned to bring a whole film team with me to do the shooting and to assist me in filming. But the situation just got more and more dangerous with every day. So eventually we decided that I was going to do it without a film team.
2: And
3: then also Turkey invaded northeastern Syria, which made the situation even worse.
1: And I think for listeners, we should explain that at that time and while you're watching the film, it can be a little confusing as to who is in charge of the area and who has been defeated and driven out and why Turkey is coming in. So all of that sort of is a political and sort of historical context to what is happening to these girls and
2: these families. The
3: Kurdish people have always been under threat from the various other countries that they live in or inhabit. Because none of the other countries want them to live in their area.
2: Så finns det finns tonnader i USA så vill alla de här grönländerna den här tonen, antingen ensam eller tillsammans.
3: Så so as soon as there is any sign of hope or relief for the Kurds it's always extinguished by the other countries. Somebody attacks somebody else.
2: Mm. Och så är det fallet också i nordöstra Syrien som det var tidigare till exempel i Irakiska Kurdistan.
3: And that is exactly what happened in northeast Syria, which is exactly what happened before in Iraqi Kurdistan earlier in 2014.
0: One thing that comes across in the movie so powerfully is both what a dedicated person Mahmoud is in terms of his dedication to freeing these girls and also the incredible kind of burdens that he's taken on you know you can see that it is he's not a wealthy person right and he's also like there's definitely moments with his wife where you can feel the strain of like the incredible work that he's doing and the toll that it takes on his family so can you talk just a little bit about what kind of person Mahmoud is you know like and how you experienced him as a filmmaker
2: uh, Mahmoud är en person som är väldigt uh, målmedveten på det han siktar på.
3: Mahmoud is a very driven and focused person, completely focused on what he's working on. Uh,
2: han lever så mycket i sin värld att han har svårt att förklara till den personen som är som sitter bredvid på vad han ska göra. Han 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 är i sin värld hela tiden.
3: He's usually so absorbed into his work or what he's doing at the moment, so sometimes he has a hard time explaining to the other people what he's about to do or what his plans
2: are.
3: For him it's very important to complete the projects or the missions that he's planned, even if the cost would be very high
2: han är själv Yazidi, bor i syrien family en väldigt lugn person när han inte är stressad eller fokuserad på sitt på det sina avdrag som han gör
3: he is a Yazidi himself but he lives in syria and usually he's a very calm and unstressed person when he's not absorbed in one of the missions that he's working on
0: If I can ask you also just a little bit, kind of, how is he able to go inside the camp? I mean, there's a sense that, as I said in the intro, right, he's always Mm. armed because this is a dangerous place to be. And it seems like there is no real police force. Mm. And he always goes in at night, right? He doesn't go in during the day. So can you kind of talk about, like how this system works, both like how he works with the infiltrators who give him information, and then also how he goes in to do the extractions. Det är väldigt många som jobbar i Eskiham centret och Mahmoud
2: är en av dem som bor närmast i lägret. Och varje gång han måste ta sig sig till lägret då måste han meddela lägret att han kommer dit. De har ju ett tillstånd där de kan komma in och ut i lägret när de vill som i Eskiham
3: Mahmoud is just one of the people working for the Yazidi Home Center. There are many, many people doing the same work that he does. But uh, anytime that he wants to enter the camp or anybody else for that matter, they need a permission to be able to go in. So they have to uh, ask for a permission every time they want to go in.
2: De har ju tillstånd som de kan komma in och ut när de vill. Så till tillstånd som Yazidi Home är redan uh, finns där, men uh, det som var svårt i det här fallet var det jag som inte var en medlem i att Jag som regissör måste också ha mina tillstånd för att komma in i läget.
3: The Yazidi Home Center usually gets permission to go in, in and out. But what made it more difficult this time was that I also had to enter the camp. So I needed my own permissions and grants. So that made it more difficult to be able to clear me to go into the camp.
2: För i normal fall så så, så kan en journalist eller någon som vill filma eller göra någonting där vara där bara ett par timmar och också i bevagning av av säkerhetspoliserna där för för att helt enkelt kunna säkra deras säkerhet.
3: Usually when a reporter like me wants to go into the camp they're usually only granted permission to enter and stay in there for a couple of hours.
2: För att det på grund av deras säkerhet så måste de lämna lägren ganska fort efter den.
3: Ja, yeah, and it's because of safety reasons they have to exit the camp after a while.
2: Så so jag var ju ständigt efter att jag skulle få ett längre tillstånd och tills du så kunde jag vara i lägret mycket längre tid, ibland under flera dagar i rad utan att lämna lägret.
3: I usually wanted to film for a couple of days in the camp. So I wanted permission to stay in there for much longer than is usually permitted.
2: Och det här gjorde jag under ett
3: I filmed in total for about one and a half years, and I had to get so many permissions signed during about one year.
1: And so you accompany them on their missions to save these girls out and extract them from the camp. And these missions are dangerous, as Eric mentioned. And the first one, the first one that we see on screen, Mahmoud and the people in the car are being chased and shot at. You're in the car with them. Can you talk about what it was like experiencing that danger while you were filming the movie?
2: Um, jag egentligen. Vi blev jagade tre gånger under den tiden jag var där. Men eh, båda första gångerna så fick jag inte filma eftersom de kände att det var för farligt att ta ut kamera ifall de skulle se att det här är en journalist och då skulle direkt eh, hela situationen skulle förändras. Uh, men tredje gången så chatta uh, jag ganska mycket på att jag måste ta ut kameran och dokumentera det här och uh, det var egentligen också den, den stunden den gången som jag kände mest att det här kanske är slutet på våra liv.
3: We were actually chased in the same car two times previously, but those times uh, the team or the SED home center felt that it was too dangerous for me to bring out a camera and arouse suspicion. And draw attention to that, so that would have changed the situation completely and made it much more dangerous. If I would have been filming during those times, but the third time that it happened, I just said, "I have to document this. I really have to bring out my camera," and so I did. But it was at that time that I truly felt that these might be the last moments of my life.
2: Okay, inan vi blev vågade den kvällen, så var jag också satt vi blev stoppade av eh, säkerhetspoliserna på vägen eftersom de hade fått reda på att det fanns mi- en mina på vägen där, där, där Eswandis cellen hade lagt där eh, och eh, men det fick jag inte heller filma på grund av eh, av, av både säkerhet säkerhet men också på grund av våran jag fick inte ta ut min kamera.
3: And uh, earlier that day, we had also been stopped by the security police and informed that there was a mine planted on the road that we were traveling on. And I was also told I was not allowed to document that. But that, of course, made it much more dangerous.
0: I mean, I'm listening to this and I'm just stuck. I mean, it's incredible the kind of risk, not only that Mahmoud and the rest of the people at the Yazidi Home Center go through, but the risk that you put yourself in to tell this story And I'm wondering a little bit like what it felt like. There's several moments when the girls are taken from the camp, girls and women taken from the camp, and they arrive at the Yazidi Home Center. And there's this, like I said before, this palpable sense of relief. But also you're struck with the horror of what they've experienced. And so I wonder if when you guys kind of got back to the home center, How did that feel? You know, you obviously have the adrenaline of having been chased, been threatened, you know, of the whole experience of the extraction. But then, just how did you feel in those moments when you got back and you see kind of the fruit of your work, but also realize that there's so much more still to do.
2: För att svara på det frågan så måste jag också säga
0: veta lite om
2: min bakgrund sedan innan. För, för, för att svara på den frågan så måste jag också berätta lite grann om min bakgrund. Eh, under hela min uppväxt så har jag eh, upplevt krig och oroligheter i mitt hemland. Jag har också varit tvungen att fly väldigt många gånger från mitt hem.
3: To answer that question, I have to tell you a little bit about my own background. During my whole childhood, I've been a refugee and I have experienced war and unrest and chaos throughout my whole childhood.
2: Center, jag då lever I.
3: So when I went down to Syria, I was taken back into this everyday life that they lead. This is happening every day of their lives. This is a strange kind of normalcy for them. So I was immediately sort of thrust back into that.
2: Så rättsland som man hade där var inte på samma sätt, samma rättsland som jag skulle till exempel idag få i Sverige om jag får höra skjutningar bakom dörren här.
3: So the fear that you experience while in a situation such as filming in Syria is a bit different from the fear that you would experience for example in the western world in Sweden if I would hear a shooting on the street here I would be much more worried and have much more panic since these are things that are happening in the background all the time you don't really panic as much or you don't feel it as much
2: So reflect on when jag sa honna på det som hände där när det var ju mycket större för mig när jag kom tillbaka hem till Sverige lugnet i Sverige och var med mina barn och min fru det var där och då jag kände reflekterade över på vad, vad egentligen jag på på med.
3: This thing's really caught up to me every time I returned back to Sweden and I returned to the calm life and the normal life that I lead here in Sweden and I could reflect on what I had actually gone through and what I had experienced and the danger and the risks that I had taken. So that's when I could really feel it and start to
2: panic over it. Många ngenser där man verkligen man vill fortsätta med det här. Både jag också producenten har jag pratat ganska många om det här om det här är verkligen värt att fortsätta med men för för mig var det väldigt viktigt att de här historierna ska berättas.
3: And there were many times that I had a conversation with my producer and he was both he and I were very worried that this work is just too dangerous and we have to stop filming. It's not worth it. It's too risky. But uh, these stories are very, very urgent for me to tell, very important for me to get out into the world. So uh, we always decided that we were going to continue.
0: We've been speaking with Hogir Hirori, director of Sabaya. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Katie Kitamura with us today. Her new novel is called Intimacies, and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Katie, what book are you going to recommend? The book that I've really been pressing on everyone in the past
4: year is Anna Sega's Transit. And it's set in occupied France. And it's about a group of refugees who are trying to leave Marseille. And in order to leave, they need to obtain the correct transit visas. Um, so it's a novel about the kind of upheaval and trauma of the Second World War. But it's also a kind of unlikely thriller about bureaucracy. And it's, just wow. been, a, it's been a really interesting book to read during the pandemic, I mean, for a number of reasons, because it really is about borders and about borders closing and about being in a kind of state of lockdown and a state of emergency. But one thing that I've really been thinking about a lot is, is the fact that I tend to write about events in my own life. Like I need a couple of years to really apprehend what happened back there, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things that is to me really extraordinary about transit is that Anna sager's a lot of it is based, it's not, autobiographical by any means, but it's based on her own experience fleeing France. And she did manage to get onto a a boat to Mexico out of Marseille. And then as soon as she arrived in Mexico, she wrote the novel and it was published in 1944 during the war. And that ability to see what was taking place with that incredible clarity is just something that felt very extraordinary to me as I was kind of in the thick of the pandemic and everything else that was happening in 2020. I really admired that Sager's ability to get that kind of almost telescopic distance and to be able to write with this vibrant clarity about what was taking place around her.
1: Can I ask you how you came upon the book? It's a New York review of books
4: reissue, mm-hmm. I think maybe even relatively recently. And I I I mean I read what I'll read anything with their logo on the spine, more or less. I mean, it's, it's just there. like New Directions is like that for me. And Archipelago mm-hmm. is like that for me. Transit Press is like that for me. There's just a, a couple of presses where whatever they're putting out, I don't even, I don't, I don't care. I'll just read it. And I have that with a handful of translators as well. I kind of know that I trust their taste so intrinsically. So I genuinely think I just saw it. Well, I think I ordered it in fact, because it was a pandemic. But I saw it somewhere and right. I ordered it. But in fact, I then realized afterwards that there was a film that was released in 20... I don't know what year, 2018, maybe, that uh, the German filmmaker Christian Petzl made. And he did this very, very brilliant thing where he didn't change anything about the story, but he said it in contemporary France. And so you you are trying to understand... You can intuit the relevance of what's taking place politically to our own times, but you can't really map it in a tidy way. And so it has these interesting kind of gaps and dissonances. And it's a really, really incredible piece of film. And I would say it's one of my favorite film adaptations of a novel that I can think of because it's very much its own creature, but it feels in some essential way true to the spirit of the book.
1: That's this is a fantastic pair of recommendations. Katie, will you tell us uh, the title of the book again and the author and the title of the film? Yes, the title of the book is
4: Transit and the author is Anna Segers, the German writer. And the title of the film is also Transit and the director is called Christian Petzold.
1: Thank you so much, Katie, for that recommendation. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. We've been speaking to Katie Kitamura. Her latest novel is Intimacies.
0: Now, back to our conversation with Hogir Hirori director of Sabaya. What does recovery look like for these women? You know, like there's uh, several of them talk about how many of them are driven to suicide, both like in the camps and just because of the, the trauma and the horror of their experience. But kind of what does a future look like for them in, as you describe, a kind of ongoing system of violence, even when they're free? Uh, um,
3: all of these rescued girls are are very much welcome uh, with open arms back into the Yazidi society. Uh, and this was um, actually established when uh, one of the highest leaders, one of the highest Yazidi leaders, came up with a statement that it's very important that we welcome these women um, or any kidnapped person back into the Yazidi society because they're, they're Yazidi and they're one of us. The Yazidis, as a as a group and as a people, are very sort of uh, intimate, or they're. They're kind of uh, closed. They don't really mix um, bloodlines with other cultures or religions. So uh, this is the first time that uh, bloodlines have have been mixed
2: that way for for that group. There are organizations
3: helping these girls to to recover once they return to their families in Kurdistan or in Iraq. I'm not saying that this help is enough by any way, anyway, but there are... Some people uh, doing that work as well. There are also organizations working to to relocate the girls. For example, Canada and Germany uh, and Australia are countries that have accepted many of these girls.
2: Okay.
3: I don't want to name any specific names, but uh, one of the girls in the in the film um, has now found the love of her life, and she's uh, so so much in love and uh, wants to start a new life with him uh, because uh, a couple of years have, have passed since then. So um, good things can come out of this as well.
1: One of the things that struck me is when they come back, you manage to maintain a distance. And I think that must be very hard, you know, because I, uh, one of the things that I think immediately is this woman comes back and the urge to, to hug her, to make her feel better, to comfort her and she has there are people at the center who do that but uh, it must be a really strong urge to sort of go in and participate in the comfort um, but the camera stands back and I wonder how you balance that responsibility for for help and for providing comfort but also for documentation it it seems mm-hmm. like a very difficult balance.
2: det på i så det innan uh,
3: usually, when when these rescue missions were, were taking place, I, I didn't have the opportunity to tell the girls or or the subjects in the middle of everything that I was filming. Usually, I, I just let them be for for a couple of days, and and afterwards, I would tell them that uh, I was I was filming when when this happened when we were rescuing you, and I want to tell you who I am and what what my purposes and what the film that I'm doing. So I would tell them afterwards.
2: But then
3: when we were at Mahmoud's home, uh, which is where most of the the girls were uh, recovering, I stayed there as well with Mahmoud and his family, and uh, I always made sure to to give the girls and myself time to, to establish some kind of relationship um, to, so we could be able to trust each other. And we would talk about anything and everything, um, and they could um, tell me uh, things off-camera and just talk to me off-camera as well before I, I started filming. for. for for documentation but i also made sure to share everything that i could about myself and about my my own childhood and about my life now in sweden and to share with them how important it is for me personally that these stories um, become known in the world and to create awareness of of this problem that is going on so that someday it can be stopped and we we since we shared the same Experiences um, that we had gone through and that so many people are still going through, um, we we could understand each other and um, uh, we we shared mutually.
2: Men också
3: but of course, there were also many girls that were afraid of the camera, and they, they had never been filmed or or put on the spot like that. Um, and never had their face, their own face or story shown through a camera. So um, anybody that, uh, that said that I don't want to be part of this or I don't want to be filmed, uh, we completely respected that and uh, and uh, made the decision very early on that, that this person was
1: not going to be included in, in the film. You know, something that struck me as I was watching it is that when these girls are taken from the camp, there is a version of home that they are either going back to but also that they're losing. You know, There's one girl, she's seven, and she is asking, you know, who used to brush your hair? And she says, my, my mama Fatima. And you know, it struck me that, oh, that was the home that this girl knew. And as you're also talking about your experience in refugee camps and with Kurds in particular, being you know, often driven from the land that they live on, what is your relationship to to what home is? does Sweden feel like home does does going back to a occurred household feel like home and how did that maybe change when you met these maybe it didn't change maybe but um when you met these girls and either watched them coming home and or leaving home or re-understanding what that is for them
2: uh for me at him that For
1: me,
3: the definition of home, for me personally, is a place where I have decided to be by myself, where I have made the decision myself to be without anybody else forcing me to be. So this girl uh, that was only seven years old uh, when she was rescued, she was only one year old when she was kidnapped together with her siblings and, uh, and her parents
2: uh for funding though there is no one who knows
3: exactly what has happened to, to her parents but uh it later turned out that uh, two of her sisters had also been rescued in in Iraq and uh, today live in Canada so for me when i think of her home um that is uh, with her two siblings with her two sisters uh, wherever they end up and when they can be together. Um, it is not the place where somebody had kidnapped her and made her live with them.
0: As we wrap up here, Hogir, what do you hope that audiences take from your film, you know, which now is kind of out and in, in wide release, you know, what do you hope comes out of this incredible work and very difficult work that you and others have done? Uh, the, the
3: most important thing with all of my films, uh, the three that I've made, is to show the real consequences of, of war and what, how it affects people's lives. I want the world to see beyond what is shown in, in normal um, Western media, exactly what effect it has on the personal lives of, of these people and the lasting consequences of war. But also I want this uh, this film to be some kind of record or, or uh, a documentation of what has happened, shown in a way that nobody has really done before in a very reality-based way. There are still more than 2,000 women and girls missing um, that are in ISIS captivity. And um, my hope is that uh, to create awareness so that more can be rescued.
2: <laughs> if it's
3: it's possible for Mahmoud and Ziad to to do this work to rescue these girls with very limited resources, these are these are poor people. They they don't have a lot in life. And If they can do it with with just a cell phone and a gun, then it is very possible for big organizations or big political powers to do something about this as well.
2: De här tjejerna har inte valt den här vägen. Därför är det värt till vilket pris egentligen att rädda dem tillbaka till deras familjer.
3: None of these girls have chosen uh, this fate for themselves, and uh, that's why it's so important for me to uh, to. Uh help them in any way that I can and save as many as, as possible. But <laughs> another important component of my, my films is um, I, I want to show that we don't have to spread hate in the world. Um, we need to show each other much more kindness um, and love because it's usually hate that is the root uh, of these conflicts and uh, of, uh, of the war that, that is going on. So uh, I want to um, ask the world to, to show each other more love instead of hate.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Hogir. This has been an incredible conversation and we so deeply appreciate your film, Sabaya, and encourage all of our listeners to see it. We've been speaking with director Hogir Horori, director most recently of the film Sabaya which is available nationwide august 6th thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you so much thank you we've been speaking with Hogir Irori director of Sabaya thanks for listening to the larb radio hour
4: thanks for listening to the larb radio hour Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Bladen.